You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Is renting really dead money? What a great dinner party conversation starter. I guarantee everybody will have an opinion. You'll get diehards on both sides of this debate. There'll be staunch rent vesters who think you'd be mad to have a mortgage and live in a modest bungalow when you can rent an apartment with a harbour view for the same monthly outlay. And you'll also get the money market guys who think property is perennially overvalued and would never dream of putting all their eggs into one lumpy investment basket. And then there'll be the traditional Aussies who won't feel they've made it until they own the modern equivalent of a quarter acre block. And also the real estate agent who thinks that all property is a good investment as long as you buy at the right price. Everything goes up in the long run, right? Well, do any of these people actually know what they're talking about? Is there even one simple answer to this question? Does anybody really know that answer? Well, we think we may have found someone who does. In this episode, we pick the brains of Andrew Price, a man who wears two hats, one as managing partner of EY Sydney and secondly as a lead partner on the audit of some of EY's largest clients. And what, I hear you say, does a man who works for a global financial advisory business with qualifications in economics, applied finance and investment know about the merits of renting versus buying? Well, I'm glad you asked. He's one of the authors of a very interesting report on this very topic and we're about to find out some very surprising things. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Great to be here. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate you giving us your time. Um, the rent versus buy debate is um, something that pops up a lot in my world. And uh, it's not as straightforward as people think. They always just assume that they should go out and buy. But, you know, what's the truth behind that story? What's some of your research suggesting? Yeah, great. So that's a great question. And certainly the reason we commissioned this research at EY is that the average age of our employees is 27. And these are the people who are in the process of making this dilemma about do you rent versus buy? And pick up on your introductory comments, that often their parents will be given the, giving them the lessons that were relevant for them in very different ages, where in, in, um, interest rates were very high, property prices behaved in different ways. So we, we did some research and, and what we did was to look over uh, the period between 1994 and 2017 and said, look, if people buy property, they typically buy it for, say, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so we did a comparison of the rent versus buy decision from a return point of view over that period across 43 different local government areas in in Sydney Mm. um, and actually just compared that decision. And what that study found was that in 60% of cases, you would have been better off from an investment point of view of actually having a geared equity portfolio, and I'll come Mm. back and explain what that is, um, rather than, than in, in fact, buying a property. Or, or indeed an apartment, because mm. we're targeting it at the younger end and we're looking at the apartment market. Mm. Now, the interesting distinction here, as I mentioned, is in fact the idea of it, that being a leveraged equity portfolio. Yep. And so leverage, you know, just thinking, make sure everyone understands what that means, is that if you're buying a million-dollar 
property and you have um, a $200,000 deposit, you're in fact very heavily exposed to the fact that that $800,000 yep. difference is being funded by the bank where you pay a fixed amount. But obviously, if the property market goes up, you get all of that benefit. Yep. But if it goes down, you you wear that loss. And so property is inherently, for, for um, new buyers, is always very heavily leveraged. Yep. And so if you just compare that to other things you might do from an investment point of view, typically they're not leveraged. Yep. Um, and so the comparison that we did was to say, well, let's compare buying a portfolio of stock. And, and a big part of the challenge for a young folk is they wouldn't know where to start to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas with property, you know, you know what a bank looks like, you know what a real estate yeah. agent looks like, you can touch and feel it. And you feel that the knowledge barriers to entry are actually quite low. Whereas if you say to people, well, let me buy a stock portfolio, wouldn't know where to begin. Yeah. And so part of this for us is a discussion around financial literacy. So in fact, people can have a more informed discussion. So, so to wow. come back. So I, mean, <laughs> I just have to interject for a minute because this is fantastic. And about financial literacy, I mean, look, I'm a property specialist. I find that when you say a low barrier to entry with property, um, I find that people think they should know, but mostly they don't know. What what people don't know is blindingly scary. Mm. And yet, and what we're talking about here is making it even more complex, which I think is fantastic that we all need to really up our game in, in this. But what an interesting you know, approach. I love it. Yeah, yeah. keep going. So yeah. I just had to sort of, yeah. I was getting, I was jumping in my seat, getting excited here. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you made a really interesting point. I thought you know, before we kind of go and kind of look at the analysis, which I think is really interesting, yes. and we'll, we'll attach all the, the links in our show mm. notes for people to kind of play around with. Mm. You mentioned a really interesting point about the parents. Your mm. staff members are going to your parents, the parents for advice, and a lot of that's very true. The parents are telling the kids to go out and buy. You must have a home. Do you find that's a lot of the reasons why a lot of young people feel like they shouldn't rent, they should just go and buy? Yeah, I mean, clearly that's been... For, for people of my generation, that that's typically been the, the path to success. And if you think about property prices, when I first bought a property uh, 25 years ago, you know, interest rates were 13%. And if you do the math, basic financial mathematics, when interest rates go from 13% to say 4% now, you know, the value of assets just increases dramatically as a result mm -hmm. of that. And, and so um, a lot of people have, have had that benefit. And so there's an if you think about what you do from a why why you own property, you really do it for two things. You know, one is, you know, is to is a place to live. You need to consume, uh, you know, housing, and you can either rent or you can buy that. Yeah. Um. And all of the tax systems and the um, arrangements as far as tenants' rights and all those things push you in favour of actually owning. Yeah, I just want to stop there as well because when you said consume housing, that's a really it's a some point that people forget about. They assume that rent is dead money, and they think that. I'm not getting anything for it. I'm mm. just paying off someone else's mortgage, et cetera. And the reality is you are getting something for it. You're, you're getting somewhere to live and you're getting yeah. somewhere to to sleep at night and the security and you actually are getting a benefit. And a lot of people don't put a value on that and they just think that, you know, they're just wasting money. Well, mm. no, you're actually getting something. And mm. I think people naturally assume that getting a mortgage is a much better option. Um, you mentioned there about um, leasing and these are some of the reasons why people don't rent, you know, about... The, the, I guess, the benefits of leasing? Yeah, exactly right. And so part of what we're calling for in our discussion is is better tenants' rights. Mm. So if you look at other jurisdictions around the world, you know, in Germany and in America and so on, tenants have much better rights. Leases are much longer. You can do minor refurbishments and renovations and paint the, you know, the property, et cetera, in your own way. And therefore, you've got much better rights. Oh, I've and got a bit of a theory on this. 
Okay. <laughs> but my sister lives in Italy. Mm-hmm. And um, and absolutely over there, tenants have enormous rights. But and, and apparently if you have a child, you cannot be evicted. It doesn't even matter mm-hmm. if you stop paying your rent. So that's pretty that's pretty big right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the th- and there's also, and something I know, and I don't necessarily want to go too much into this in this episode, but the multi-generational um, property ownership. And that's certainly something that is a hallmark of these um, older, if you like, these older countries, you know, in terms of property point of view, yeah. yeah well, right. no, in terms of how they've been, yes, in terms of property, yes. Um, you know, Sydney's or Australia's had property being built since what, 1788. <laughs> That's yeah. it. You know, these these have got centuries and centuries of built properties. Um, and so the whole concept of home ownership is very, very different. I remember having conversations with my brother-in-law a number of years ago about the fact that there's no property market in Italy. And I, I couldn't get my, could not wrap my head around the fact that there's no effectively no inflationary push on property prices. And, and, we, and we had many, many discussions around this. And, and I, I've come to the conclusion, and maybe, you know, it'd be interesting to see what you say with your research, is that with population, they've got large populations, you know, and banks don't lend as much money um, to people to buy property. And you've got families owning property and people tend to live in them or they leave them vacant because of the tenants' rights in many cases. Um, but there is this very much, a very, very different attitude towards property ownership there. And it, I'm suspecting that we're heading that way. Yeah. And, and, and as you say that our market is very different and is a new market and a lot of our houses are relatively new. Um, and also, you know, what people see as a house or an apartment has changed over time. If you think about, you know, when I grew up, is in the, it was a quarter acre block and a relatively mm. modest house with one bathroom, yep. et cetera. Whereas now, you know, each child thinks they need to have their own bathroom, et cetera. And don't worry about the backyard. Let's, in fact, um, you know, let, let, let's have, have extra bedrooms. So I think that discussion around what is the societal expectations around it, um, it you know, is something that we, we all need to, to face into. Um, and, and so coming back to the, the question then on, you know, where that pressure is coming from, I think... So if we, we say we consume housing, um, but also we're investing and saving at the same time. Yep. And, and so what we're talking about in, in this research piece is to say you can decouple those two things. Yep. Um, and, and in fact, you, sh- you know, if we all have a, a better conversation around financial literacy, you can in fact be thinking about how you might invest differently if you are in a saving phase, particularly with very low interest rates where you know, putting money on deposit with the bank is, is, you know, is, would hardly seem worthwhile. But in an intervening period where you are looking to save and maybe you're going to save for three or four years before you can get enough for a deposit, you think about where that money actually goes. And that's why, you know, the sort of thing of actually investing in a diversified portfolio might make sense, albeit that does come with volatility. So it needs to, it's not, and we're certainly not advocating that would be the answer for everyone and we're not giving financial advice, but it's actually to consider more opportunities than what you might think of the moment, which is either you know, have your money on deposit at the bank, not getting much while you save for a deposit. I think really like that idea. So what it's one of the things I talk about with clients is, you know, I get this myth that they, you know, they have to buy, they've got the money in the bank. It's wasted. You know, you can't leave the money in the bank. You're only getting 2%. Um, and they, you know, they're not ready to buy a house. You know, they say they're in their mid twenties, early, late twenties. And that's really where this problem I think is very, you know, prevalent. Um, and they'll rush out and buy something, you know, with no you know, view of that home mm. or that apartment to ever be suitable for them long-term. And the reality is, you know, they, they shouldn't actually buy a lot of the time because the cost to buy, you know, the stamp duty and then the cost to sell. And then when you add up the the additional amount they have to pay in a mortgage over renting, 
um, a lot of the time it doesn't make sense. And what you're saying is, is that you're decoupling, you know, what's the actual cost to rent plus the additional amount for what a mortgage would be and all the costs. And you actually are saving that money and people don't really put a value on what they're actually saving. They just think, you know, it's, I can't rent, I can't rent, it's wasting money. Yeah. And particularly for folk in, you know, in their twenties in particular, who are thinking about their career, it's still evolving and so on, you know, having the flexibility to say, you know, if a great opportunity came up in Melbourne to actually move there, um, you know, that's, that sort of flexibility is there. Mm. So, so we think um, the people need to think perhaps differently about the conversation, but also there's stuff that the government can do to actually put the, put the balance back in favour of renting. Because at the moment, all of the tax concessions and everything else goes to buying. Um, but if a government were to think about ch- some changes in policy around tenants' rights, but then also stamp duty, you know, and, you know, as, as anyone who studies economics will tell you, a, a, a tax on transactions is a bad tax. Mm. Um, and because it stops people doing things. And over, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, Australia has got rid of most of those transactions taxes. The big one that's still there is stamp duty. Um, in the ACT, over the last five years or so, they've gone through a process of moving from a transaction, from stamp duty to a, to a broad-based land tax. Mm. And we think that that is good policy. And, that, you know, a suggestion here in, in New South Wales, for example, is to allow people to when they are, do buy a property, you can either elect to pay the stamp duty or you can elect to not pay stamp duty and go to a land tax system. Mm. And that property then becomes la, um, land tax based going forward. So you give people the choice and over time, things you would expect would migrate to a system whereby it's much more land tax based rather than, than transactional based. Um, and that will help in the other piece of research that we've done, which showed that in on census night in 2016, there were 600,000 surplus bedrooms in Sydney because people have got no incentive either because of stamp duty or of the way the retirement system works to actually downsize. Yeah. Mm. And if you take away that disincentive, the you know older couple who've got a, a three or four bedroom house um, we, you know, who really only need one extra bedroom for when the grandchildren come over will we'll not have any disincentives to not move to a smaller place and allow another family to have that four-bedroom house, you know, which is just better use of our housing stock. We we had a conversation on exactly this with, was it Warren Hogan? And it's very complex because the thing is that, you know, the older couple, you know, the downsizers moving out of the their house, well, that house may not be in demand anymore because a different type of house. It might be one of those three-bedroom bungalows with only one bathroom, for instance. So therefore, it then enters the market not in its current form, i.e. not used in the current way, but as potentially a development site or someone's mm. going to knock it down and rebuild, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that will change, obviously, the, the landscape of, of housing stock. But then on the flip side, what do they do with that money? And quite a lot of these downsizers are thinking, well, they might want to help their kids out. So that might actually help bring more people into the marketplace. So there's some interesting behavioural outcomes from opening up this. Mm. Has any modelling been done on that? So we haven't done specific modelling on that. The, the research we did was very much focused on determining how many surplus bedrooms. Mm. And, yeah. and we'll use the word surplus, not empty. Yeah. Mm. So surplus was more than one, so right. above above one empty bedroom. So it wasn't, right. 
So it wasn't a case of saying, well, you know, you, that that older couple should have a one bedroom apartment. We get, <laughs> right. we you're get not that. allowed to have a spare room. So, you're so not the, allowed to have a study. So this is two and above, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. so six hundred thousand. If you think about wow. the number of people who are coming into into New South Wales yeah. in particular each year, that's that's many years of housing stock that could be unlocked. Now, clearly, you're not going to unlock all of it, so be realistic about mm. it. Um, but it is around getting good public policy around the way that works with the pension system. Because again, if you use that example of an older couple, they yeah. may go, well, in fact, if we um, if we release several hundred exactly. thousand dollars of equity, that actually affects the pension. Yeah. And even if we do give it to our children, that comes into the pension test as well. Yeah. So, um, or even if they rent out their, those extra rooms on Airbnb. Yes. Yeah. It's a really interesting one. I think um, long term it will come up in conversation. You know, there'll be more taxes out there that pop up. And the home, in, when you are in retirement, you know, there's a few issues. Um, yeah, your house is growing tax-free. And so a lot of the older generation understands that that's their biggest asset. It's where most of their wealth is. And, you know, for them to downsize into another property, even if that makes more living sense, it might not make financial sense. And a lot of older generations want to give that house to the kids and they don't want to leave the house because, you know, they know that's their best asset that's growing tax-free. And secondly, it's the pension issue. You know, there is a an exemption now for when you are in retirement that that's not included in your pension. So there's not actually an incentive to sell it for the two major reasons. And so, you know, I guess that, but, you know, the and state then, government what, will. What if somebody gets a reverse mortgage and they can't afford to sell it? Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that will come up. But, I mean, that's kind of not really what the government really wants to help without housing affordability, right? Mm. I mean, it might help spending, but it's not really going to create that kind of demand or those open up those bedrooms, is it? No, that's right. And and so from an individual point of view, that probably that discussion probably doesn't help because the rules are what they are, mm. uh, and it's a very politically sensitive mm. topic. So if you think yep. about, you can think about yep. both stamp duty and, and um, the exemption for the family home from from basically the tax regime. Yeah, you know, it would be a Ooh. very brave politician to tackle either of those issues. Mm. We would see the stamp duty one. There are examples of where you can make that change, uh, and because as mm. with any tax system, it's all about the, the real issue is. How do you get from one system to another? And we think that there's there's examples of, of being able to do that. Yeah, tell us some of those because I have read a few and I've forgotten them. So <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the primary one is the ACT, where they they went and effectively they just mandated that they were going to do it over a period. So we we think the better example of and suggestion on how to do it is the one I've described, which is allow mm. people that choice because what people don't want to do. Um, is to say, well, I've I've paid a lot of stamp duty and I've just bought a place, oh, and now exactly. I'm going to be affected. Yeah, and yeah. so by allowing people to make that election, no one's going to feel that they're disadvantaged. Mm. Although the person that bought and paid all the stamp duty just before that comes in is going to be disadvantaged because then they, their runway is a lot longer in terms of their payback period for that. Yeah, albeit they'll have a longer time where they're not paying land yeah. tax. Mm. So, um, but I agree, and that's as I say with any intergenerational and transfer from one tax system to another. The real issue is how you manage transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, it could and, create a bit of a building boom, couldn't it? Um, you know, because, you know, from a flipper's point of view, you know, one of the things they have to make sure is there's enough profit in the bill to cover the stamp duty, mm. to cover the selling costs. Um, and if you take away stamp duty and replace that with something like land tax, you could create that there's a lot of, you know, more demand for people just to go in and flip buildings, I guess. There'd be... You know, there's all these kind of, if you change the tax codes, there's all these kind of knock-on effects that mm. you don't really know that could be positive, could be negative. Yeah. And so while you might be trying to help first home buyers, you might be creating, you know, more demand for builders. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just, yeah. there's so many interconnectedness. Yes. And, and so perhaps if we come back to the research we've done, because there's one more point I do want to make. Yeah. I mentioned the concept that in fact, 
it, the, our analysis includes a leveraged equity portfolio. Yes, yes. Now, because <laughs> our analysis gets a very different result if it's not a leveraged equity portfolio. Now, can I ask what your assumptions are on that? Because, and this is the thing, people think they pay rent and they don't think, well, what are they going to do with the surplus? Yeah. Um, so this yeah. is what, what you're using that surplus for. And then you're obviously borrowing in order to invest elsewhere. So what sort of assumptions have you made? Because typically you can't borrow as much on shares, for instance, as you can yep. in property. Yep. No, that's very, very good point. So the assumptions we used in our modelling was that the money would be invested in a portfolio of ASX 200 companies. So not trying to pick stocks yep. directly, yep. just invest like in the ETF market. Or something. Exactly yep. right. Um, and then it's leveraged to 50%. Yeah. Okay. And, and so when we put this research out, I did have some people ring and say, you know, have you thought about... The, whether there's going to be any margin calls in that time. So if you think about how that works mm. is that equity is inherently more volatile than property in price. And if you have a mortgage loan and it's 50%, if you get circumstances where that, that um, equity markets go down, they can have a what's known as a margin call and they require you to top that percentage up. Yep. Over the research period that we've had, the only time there would have been a margin call is in the GFC when equity yeah. markets went down significantly. Mm. But again, as with all investing, you do, if you do it over time, um, that's the, so the advantage of this is you, in fact, you know, would it be able to invest each year in the stock market yeah. and, and, and have that volatility somewhat averaged out rather than in a property investment where you, in fact, go, well, I'm going to go all in, you know, and it's what does that property look like at that point? Yeah. And yeah. that's why we've seen many different outcomes um, where, you know, if you invest in the wrong area, in the wrong type of property at the wrong time in the cycle, you are significantly disadvantaged. And we'll get to that in a minute, but because I've been playing around with, uh, there's a report where we'll put the link in the notes um, and there are various interactive bits of this report where you can plug in dates and suburbs mm -hmm. and, and all the rest. So it's very, very interesting. And in fact, I just did some research myself mm -hmm. and, I, and um, I've got a blog which I'll put the link in for that as well. And I was wanting to look at, um, and this is around timing, right? So I was wanting to look at uh, properties that have bought in the lead up to the peak, so in the 18 months up to June 2017, and then on sold between then and, say, June 2019. And how many of those sold at a loss versus at a, at a gain and all the rest of it? The, pre the premise being I knew that not everything lost money, um, even though Sydney averages, you know, had got, or median price had gone down. Um, I wanted to really just look into and dive into and understand that. I would, I, I started with a hypo hypothesis that it'd be around the property type would, would be the differentiator. But over that short period of time, the property type itself wasn't enough, right? Mm. Um, what I found was the timing was really important, really important. Um, and obviously these are short-term transactions, which we never encourage with property. So over long periods of time, if you buy a quality asset, it doesn't matter. The blip in time, absolutely blip in time. But, yeah, I found it absolutely mm. fascinating, this timing thing, because I've always said it doesn't matter when you buy a property in Sydney as long as you buy a good asset and you want to hold it for long enough, and that, that actually holds out. But, um, yeah, so there's some interesting stuff in this, and I, I'd love to hear more of your insights. Yeah, and, and so certainly if you think about the period that we're doing from 94 to 2017, so, you know, almost 40 years, and to your point, we are looking at 10-year blocks because, mm. you know, otherwise, you know, the, the, the timing issues mm. become significant. If you think about what's happened over that time, you know, equity markets have generally gone up, but but have also had significant falls, the most significant of which was in 2018. Um, eight, it, you mean? Sorry, eight. 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 Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you. I was listening. <laughs> and, and the other thing, of course, is that property in various local government areas has been re-rated. 
Mm. And so if you think about it, certainly in some of the inner city areas, you know, in in uh, thinking about where we are here today in, in Redfern and Surrey Hills, you know, when I went to university near here, you know, no one would think you about living here, here, which is a very different <laughs> yeah. environment yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and also to your earlier point, what people are looking for is also quite different. So when I was going through having young children, you would never think really of living long-term in an apartment. Yeah. You know, mm. And that was the societal norm. Oh, you've got children now. Okay, you might have them in the in an apartment for their first couple of years, but after that, you know, whereas in other places around the world, that's not the case. And, Back you know, to Italy and, 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 and Europe. Indeed, yeah. And indeed, increasingly in Australia, people are saying, no, no, we as a family are quite happy to live um, in, in, in an apartment. Um, there's actually a nice park next door, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole way we live mm. is very different. And again, if you think about how children grew up, you know, you know, 30 odd years ago, you know, they would play, you know, cricket or, or netball or so on yeah. out on the streets, yeah. et cetera. You know, the whole way our society lives is very different. And therefore the types of property that people are looking for. So to, um, you know, the whole point of that discussion is then to come back to, you know, suburbs have been re-rated mm. um, according to what people are looking for. And, and our research shows what, what I think we all intuitively know is that the property growth has been in and around the core more so than in the outer. Um, and that does, you know, reflect yeah. the fact that travel times, you know, with, um, with, with, you know, more traffic and so on, you know, are, are getting longer. So therefore people are prepared to make that trade yeah. saying, I want to be closer in um, and I'm happy to live in a, in a smaller um, a form of accommodation um, for that convenience. And yep. in terms of, um, there's a few things on the research that, you know, I, I, I love the research because at least it's starting to open up the debate between not just always going and buying, let's just consider, yeah. should we rent? Should we just rent and invest? And a lot of people in equity markets, for example, think like that and they think they shouldn't buy. They do everything to convince themselves they shouldn't buy and then they end up just investing and then maybe they don't leverage it, et cetera. So I wonder what your research kind of found in terms of houses and units because, mm. you know, there are different demand and supply issues that are kind of playing to those markets. We, did you find that houses kind of did perform better than yeah. the apartments? Yeah. So so our, just to be clear, our research was focused on apartments because yep. we think that's, that's yeah. an easier thing to do as far as, well, one, it's because you're talking about, the, you know, the sort of a younger mm. first home buyer demographic, um, but also um, it's a, a more homogenous commodity to look yep. at apartment prices, whereas you know, what, what a house looks like now compared to what it looked like in 2000, sorry, 1994 <laughs> is very different. And mm. so in fact, you, you know, your average, um, you know, while the price has gone up, so has effectively the cost and what you actually get for that. Yeah. Because, you, you know, typically the average house now is, is bigger and has more amenities within mm. it. Yeah. And I think the, you know, I think what you, you know, you might find with that research is that it probably is a little bit different than you, when you are mm. buying houses over apartments and, you know, that's a lot of that comes down to the supply that keeps getting built and there's no more houses getting kind of built in the inner ring. And I think the inner ring versus outer ring is a big discussion. You know, a lot of the returns, I guess, for buying house and land packages versus buying a house in the inner ring will be completely different. And someone buying a house in the inner ring is probably more likely to be better off buying than, say, renting, um, whereas someone in the outer ring is probably better off to be renting rather than buying a lot of the time. Is that what you found in your research? Yeah, indeed. Certainly in the outer ring, that that proportion of times when you are better off um, renting is in fact higher in the outer ring. Mm. Um, and so that, and clearly that reflects the fact that there has been proportionately less growth in, in apartment prices in, in that period. So I think that, that, that point is, is right. And so therefore, you know, we would come back to, you know, where you live is a lifestyle decision, but it's also, there's an investment decision there as well. Mm. And just, mm. just be clear to uncouple and, and be really clear in your own mind why you're doing what you're doing. 
And this is, I, I look, I love this debate and this is why we have the elephant in the room to talk about the stuff that nobody else is talking about but we know is there, you know. Um, but I think it's important to draw that distinction with the apartments. I, oh, it's such a shame you can't do this. And I understand why you can't do this research for houses because basically there's no way to measure one house as it was, as you say, in 1994 and as it is today. It might have been demolished and rebuilt on the same lot of land and, and it might have been completely renovated. It, there's so much that can be changed around houses, whereas, like you say, with apartments it's much more contained, that, mm. so mm. therefore it's more measurable. Um, and I think that's an important thing for listeners to want to think about too, that this this research is about apartments, but is it somewhat skewed then? And look, I'm not in favour of the ex, you know, the the outer extremities of our cities. <laughs> I'm not in favour of that. Um, but how many apartments are really out there, and how many apartments were out there in 1994? You know what I mean? Yeah, indeed. So, so uh, agree. I mean, I think that that is right. That is some of the challenges of data that yeah. we, you know you do have that change in trend, mm. and, and certainly because I, mean, I have to say I love you know confirmation bias. So I just want to go straight along with it. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to trying to contain my own elephant here. Yeah, <laughs> in, indeed, and and certainly um, thinking about Sydney, you know, the the way the whole transport infrastructure is working, you know, because people talk about a thirty mm. minute commute to work as being ideal, mm. um, and at the moment there's there's massive investment in infrastructure, and a lot of that is then also pointing towards Parramatta as a city hub mm. rather than just the CBD. But a lot of that's still work in progress. So I think yeah. over time, you know, if you do go to outer suburbs, there will be um, apartments, mm. uh, increasingly apartments around the transport hub. You know, so if you think about the new metro and the other metros that have been developed. You know, you you will see that, that there will be, um, mm. you know, that that sort of um, you know housing density will be there again on the basis that people are saying, well, we're quite happy to live a little bit further out if it's above a train station or near a train station where there are parks and other amenities nearby. But that still means I can be a thirty percent, sorry, thirty minute mm. commute Commute-ish. into work. Yeah, I think there's a, a few really interesting points. I think, um, so I do a lot with first-home buyers and, um, you know, a first-home buyer will be very happy if they've got a 20% deposit. I think that a lot of them, whether they're getting a family guarantee or a loan from mum and dad, it's not really their money. Um, you know, very few have actually saved up a full 20% plus stamp duty. And, you know, yes, there's stamp duty exemptions depending on state you're in, et cetera. But, um, you know, most of the time it's 10. 10 would be a really good outcome. So I think a lot of the research would probably be swift. If you've only got, you know, a hundred thousand for a million dollar property rather than 200,000, you're then going to, even if you leverage it, you'll only have 200,000 investing in the stock market rather than 400,000. And a lot mm. of that will probably swift the returns. But the, uh, what I love about the last two years, unfortunately, is that it has shown that um, property prices go down. And, you know, a lot of people don't really understand how risky property is because just how much you leverage it. You know, if you're putting a hundred thousand dollars in to buy a million dollar property, you're 10 times leverage. And if the price of that property mm. goes down, you're the one who loses all your money first, not the bank. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the benefits of actually looking at these things because a lot of people think I can't lose on property. I'll sell it for at least of what I purchased it for. And it's just not the case. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, people should just start to consider, should I rent for the next five years and then buy my home rather than just go buy an apartment? Yeah, and, and I think that that's a, it's a good point, and particularly at the moment with housing affordability and the proportion of people's income that needs to go into serving existing um, property at, at the, the, you know, the current interest rates and at the current prices, you know, it, that would kind of suggest that, in fact, you know, interest rates can't go really much lower, and therefore the multiplier effect of interest rate reduction on asset prices that I spoke about earlier is unlikely to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if interest rates go from 1 to 0.75, you're there going, that actually 
really is not going to move asset markets in the same way as what they've gone when they're going from 5 or 7% down yep. to 1%. Yeah. So, uh, the, and, and look, just for those who haven't studied economics like me, and so, <laughs> um, and that is really because you free up and put more money into the economy, more people can buy property, and the more people buy property pushes the prices up, and that's what happens when interest rates are lower, right? It just makes it more affordable yeah. initially, and then ultimately, because basically all everything finds its own level, um, it gets to a point yeah. where it's yeah, and new market other, value, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and also that does come to how much the banks are prepared to lend. So if you take mm, a really exactly. simple example, if the banks are prepared to lend half of what they used to, yep. then you, prima facie, property prices will halve yes. because yep. people who are going along to bid, exactly. you know, it's the same way as if, yep. you know, if we all put a zero on the end of our dollars, like you, when you go to some other countries, property prices just go up tenfold, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it just, so, but it's all, so, so therefore it is how much you know, money is in the system yep. does drive it. And I think that's the other thing that, um, you know, with what, the government and the regulators have been doing on banks on responsible lending, um, which I think you know there is merit in, mm. Um, but, mm. but but that will in fact just dampen the market because people are able to borrow less. And we regularly hear those stories as to how long that actually um, you know how long it takes to get approval and so mm. on. Yeah, and so I think that's the other thing that buyers are now learning, which hasn't been there previously, which is. Um, you know, don't don't assume the bank's going to approve your loan quickly. Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah. a, a few years ago, you could, have, you know, go to a mortgage broker or to the bank and they'd say, yes, you can be confident you would get this and that would happen pretty quickly. That's no, no longer the case. I really look at it like, um, so a lot of people think about tailwinds and headwinds and a lot of the property market has had a lot of, you know, tailwinds, um, you know, because, you know, mm. in the 80s, for example, you know, maybe one person in the family was working. Um, now, you know, most couples are working, double, double income, you know, a lot of, maybe one was earning good money and one wasn't. And now they're both earning double incomes and high incomes. And so that's a huge push up because the more income in a household means more money they can borrow. And we can't go to three people households um, that are working or four, et cetera. So that's unlikely. We're not going to get that kind of tailwind, you know, interest rates going from 18%, you know, down to 1%. Once it's down, once, once that's factored into the economy, we're not going to get that again, which is what you're saying. Um, so I think a lot of people think that, what's happened over the last 30 years will happen over the next 30 years. But the reality is we haven't got these, you know, strong things pushing up the market as much besides kind of immigration and things like that. Um, you know, I guess so that's probably the thing to, for buyers to think about is that just what's happened in the past isn't going to happen in the future. And you need to start thinking, you know, alternatively. Yeah. I, look, it's interesting. I remember only a few years ago in the middle of the boom, I get clients coming to me and they'd be saying, Oh, the bank will lend me 3 million, but I don't want to spend that. And now you get the opposite saying, oh, three years ago, I would have been able to get three million. I now can only get two and I, you know, and I can't buy what I want. So it's a very, very different conversation. But but I still feel that despite all the press, most, you know, maybe I haven't spoken to enough people maybe, but most people still don't realise that the difficulty in getting finance applies to them, you know. Mm. I still think it's going to take a while for that to actually filter through into common just a common acceptance. Yeah, and I think there's also a, a lifestyle debate to be had around how much to borrow. Because, again, mm. if you go to a bank and they say, well, you can, we'll lend you $2 million, do you really want the stress of having a mortgage yeah. of $2 million, yeah. say, using your examples, mm. in a way, in fact, you, and that might get you a, not, a bigger house with an extra bathroom and an extra uh, bedroom, say, or would you rather have a, a more manageable mortgage yeah. and have actually the, the absence of that stress? Um, and certainly, I think you know a lot of um, you know 
banks and others are thinking about what, what indeed is the responsible amount to lend people rather than what is the maximum amount. Yeah, and look, interesting back to your research as well, because I wondered around the actual psychological or emotional value in owning your own home, you know, mm. because of course, when we're just looking at comparing renting to, to buying in a purely financial sense as an investment, and mm. this is something that I, I encourage all of my, certainly all of my clients that are owner-occupiers to think of their home as an investment. A lot of people yeah. say, no, oh, it doesn't matter. I just want a home. I want to live in it. And, and I was like, well, that's okay. You may think that. I'm going to remember it's an investment. <laughs> we'll remember it's an investment throughout the whole process. But, um, yeah, how do you – I mean, you can't really quantify that, can yeah. you? So, so the interesting one, um, which comes back to the discussion around tenants' rights, I, I regularly hear people say, I have to buy or rent in a particular area because I have a pet. Mm. Um, and, and particularly as we get a, a larger number of households that are single person, as we've got ageing and all sorts of other yeah. demographic changes, um, you know, that, that the ability to actually have pets and to be reasonable around that is an, is an interesting one. So yeah. um, that, that I think does um, often from, a, from an emotional point of view yeah. drive a decision, and we know, which is fair enough if, you know, uh, you know, if you've, got a, you've got a dog, it's not as if, or a cat, you're not as if you'd say, oh, well, I'll... Yeah. I'll just exit that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it will be the last thing that you will, you will go. But it does, you know, drive people to say, well, if I buy a house, I can actually then have a pet, and in fact, I can do the renovations and other things. So, and the, you mentioned that, then that's an interesting one because quite a lot of people come to me too, and they say, right, I'm ready. I always ask them, why have you decided you want to buy now? And it's like, well, I'm sort of sick of living yeah. in someone else's home that I can't actually put up pictures when I want, paint the walls, blah blah blah. And yet, as a property investor. You know, oh, I, oh, this is a really difficult line to walk, isn't it? How much renovation do I want my tenant doing on my home, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, but, you know, how would you feel about a five-year lease? Because, again, if you go to Germany, yeah. you know, yeah. five- and ten-year leases mm. are quite common, um, and, you know, that way people do have certainty. They do have more rights about what they can do. Clearly they can't yeah. damage the property and all the rest of it, but, but just balancing that up a bit. Well, it's like uh, a commercial lease. And so yeah. this is the thing, you know, it's, it's set in Italy, back in Italy, um, when you move into a rented property, you actually take in your own bathroom and kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you basically rent the shell and, and it's like a commercial lease here. If you mm-hmm. rent an office, you, you yep. usually go in there and fit it out, you know, and then when you, you leave that, you finish that lease, you rip out all your fittings, you know, mm-hmm. and it's 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 very similar in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that maybe that's going to be a future. You, you rent the four walls and... Yeah, I think there's yeah. a lot of... Around the long leases, I've thought about it a lot. Um, you know, property managers don't like it. Um, they don't have any incentive. They love to get their leasing fee every couple yeah. of years and to up the up the rent and keep engaged with their tenants. And it, the well, long the if, rent increases can be factored into the into the lease. Yeah. yeah, and I guess a longer lease after a while, you could dump your property manager and yeah. you know not have a property manager. So there's a, there's a there's a perception so, change there in the property yeah. management side. Yeah, but at the moment you're talking as individual investors, where mm. you've got one or two or three perhaps properties, mm. and you know whereas. If you, if you go to other places, and, and indeed if you do start going to 10-year leases, you have a very different type of investor. Yeah. Mm. So you have and the big property investor. companies mm. and the, the big superannuation funds mm. who actually go, no, we, we own this building. Yeah. And in fact, as the, if that was a, um, a, a sort of a, an office building, mm. they would want it let out for yeah, 10 years. For sure. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the ability for, for, for the build-to-rent market to further develop and so on, it brings in mm. a different type of investor as well yeah. rather than, as you say, if you've got one investment property, you're going to watch that like a hawk. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you've, you, if you've got a, um, an institutional fund manager, they will make sure it's managed, but it'll be managed in a, in a, in a, uh, a less short-term way. Yeah. 
I think that a lot of the, I mean, the institutional side hasn't really worked here because our yields are just so low on property and, you know, they're trying to make build to rent work and longer leases will be part of that and it will suit, but I think it'll really suit a kind of affordability rather than an aspirational renter, unless they're really high end and then they're going to cost build costs and things like that. So it's going to be very interesting to see if the build rent model actually works. I think the other problem with longer leases is that if you do sign a lease, you can't kick your tenant out if you want to sell the property. And the reality yeah. is if you can't tick your, kick your tenant out, um, which, you know, they, they might furnish it however they want. Um, so you, it's very hard to sell it with their furniture in. Sometimes you want to style it or, and the reality is if, if you're trying to sell it to a home buyer, um, they can't move in for say two, three or four years. And so a lot of, you know, investors will won't want to sign a longer mm. lease because unless they can kick the tenant out to sell it, they won't want to do it. And so that's something that would have to get managed as well. So there's all these kind of, if even if they, you know, do bring in an option for longer leases, I just don't think a lot of investors will take it, unfortunately, because yeah. yeah. of those reasons. Yeah, but but again, if, if investors want liquidity, if yeah. you think about how you change the market, well, in fact, you, you just have a fund that owns the building. Um, and yeah. in fact, if you want to, so and you might invest, invest a couple of hundred thousand mm-hmm. in that fund. If you want to get out, you get out of the fund, yeah. not out of the building. Mm. Um, a different and, model and, and so it's a, yeah. it's a very, you know, mm. you know, it does, because as a country, does it make sense for all of our residential property to effectively be owned by individuals when we've actually got a lot of money, you know, our biggest asset is, you know, currently the, the family home over time, that will increasingly become superannuation. Mm. And where is that going to be invested? So it's grand, It's one of these things that I think we need to have a, a more mature discussion to actually think about what's yeah. the problem and then how might we solve it? Mm. Um, it's, and because, and, you know, the market dynamic for property will change over time. And ab- look, it will absolutely. And certainly I think the yields are the issue at the moment. And um, even with longer tenancies, I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to change. But, yeah, it's a really interesting because it's a – problem that needs to be solved at some point, at least discussed. But I think the problem really is it's not so much for singles and couples, um, you know, who want to rent, you know, yes, you know, there is a a housing affordable, like a homelessness problem that can't afford to, you know, that's definitely, there's a growing bigger problem. I think, you know, if you speak to most younger kind of couples, you know, they're not, they're okay renting. It's more when they want to buy and they don't, they're not that bothered buying when they're, you know, single or in a couple they just feel there's a pressure to buy because they're worried about the market moving on them. So it's a, mm. it's more of a, um, I have to buy because I don't want to miss out. Where the real pressure is and the problem is, is when they start having kids and they don't want to rent because the buildings that they have to rent are generally apartments and they can't afford houses. And a lot of the apartments that are built just don't suit families. And, mm. you know, they're in areas where there's lots of other renters and there's parties and there's supply. And so even if we do, you know, create better rental options, unless they suit families, we won't really solve the problem because that's where the, the real problem is, is when as soon as the kid comes along, people want security and they want schools and they want stability mm. and there's just not enough rental accommodation for that. Mm. You know, have you thought about, you know, I guess, you know, in things, you know, I guess that conversation in terms of, you know, building more suitable housing for families? Indeed. And I think that, you know, again, you know, the property developers and the councils and others are aware of that. And if you mm. think about you know, the, the densification that's going along our major transport routes, you know, that is, is very much being driven by that. So if you think about in the local area where I live, you know, they are, they are building multi-storey apartments, but they're also building parks. Mm. Um, and you can only, and the local council and so on can only fund that by actually capturing some of the value that comes from, from rezoning the property. Mm. Um, and that whole value capture system um, is something that I think <laughs> as a society, we need to make sure that in fact, 
you know, as a society, we're not by rezoning and allowing densification, the society is benefiting from that yeah. rather than just the property developer. However, accepting that the property developer is taking a big risk and therefore will need to be rewarded for that. So mm. just getting the balance right in that, in that conversation. But back to the comments earlier, I think I hear you about what young families are looking for, but we would see that trend as changing mm. in that people, you know, m- might be more prepared to say, well, well, we'll live in an apartment because there is a park next door yep. and there is indeed childcare potentially in the bottom of that building um, yep. and, and much more moving to a sharing economy where you're there going, well, in fact, if I could live in an apartment that was child friendly, that did yep. have childcare in the bottom of the building, did have a gym and a swimming pool, you know, you know, the swimming pool can be bigger than you could ever have in your own home, mm. et cetera. Um, but a lot of those at the moment are more geared for individuals and, and sorry, you know, people without children. Yep. But we think that trend will change yep. as, as, you know, more um, apartment developments become family friendly. It's, yeah. My friend lived in Hong Kong for seven years. I used to go and visit every single year and they lived in an apartment building and it was very much like that playroom down the bottom and there was, um, the you know, the pool and the gym and, and all that sort of stuff. And it was um, very much like a village and it was a classic. I mean, nobody had a matching set of wine glasses anymore because they used to just sort of rock up and, and take their glass of wine with them into mm. their friend's apartment. It was a really nice, it was like a grown-up Melrose place, you know, mm. <laughs> grown-up Melrose place with kids vertically. Um, and I think that that can be a really wonderful community. And certainly when she came back to Australia, she said she felt very isolated in her house, you know. Mm-hmm. So so there's lots of merits for that if it's well designed. The, I think the big problem is that there's only some developers that are catching on and actually designing that type of mm. um, property. And, and up until very recently, there's been far too much focus on basically building investor stock rather than that. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting yeah. in, to see what happens in that space. But fast forward a few years um, – you know, when you're retiring, I mean, so this idea about it's not always be- better to buy over rent um, and then looking at all these alternatives to make renting more palatable, more desirable, all that sort of stuff. But what about entering into retirement without owning your own home? I mean, it's still pretty, you know, there's a lot of uh, research around the disadvantage or people are disadvantaged, significantly mm. disadvantaged if they don't have their own home hitting retirement. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that clearly is a, is a policy issue. And we know that the people who are often affected by that are, in fact, older women mm. and who, who, for whatever reasons, aren't in that position. And that's where uh, also, you know, they older women also tend to have much lower superannuation balances. Mm, yeah. And so that's one where, if you think about, um, you know, to date, our, our sort of the, the safety net has been our pension system. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, being able to build into the pension system, you know, the, uh, you know, and, the, Pretty horrible states. Yeah, no, 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 though, no in, in, yeah. indeed. And so, yeah. and so that that's again one where having certainty is very important mm. to people. Yeah. Um. And you know, we'll think. I think we're going to see over time, um, on the superannuation side of things, people are going to be going. Well, in fact, I now need to live off that. Yeah. Um. And they're going to potentially invest it in different ways. So perhaps more in annuities and lower volatility mm. type things because people are saying, well, I can't afford to lose twenty percent of my yeah. income. Yeah. You know, and, and so on. So I think. That is an, a, another example of where people do need certainty at that point because you know, the young folk have actually got enough time to be able to yeah. ride out market bumps, whereas if yeah. you're in retirement, then you don't have that flexibility. And that's mm. the perfect customer for a build-to-rent model, right? You know, the building is tailored for older generation, you know, and, you know, they want to lease for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, you know, because they don't want to have the, you know, they haven't got the income to kind of rents to go up too much so you can have fixed rental increases. So, you know, I think that's a brilliant spot where, you know, that generation are competing with first home buyers and investors and, you know, they're trying to get somewhere to rent and their rents are going up, but they haven't got income. So they can't, 
keep mm. on paying higher rents. And so that's a big part of the problem. And homelessness is, you know, very prevalent at that age. Yes, indeed. And again, that's obviously, you know, the, the, the state and federal governments will, will need to do more to help in that regard. Mm. And again, they are doing that and particularly having more affordable housing closer in. You know, because it's easy to say, well, you know, there's somewhere in the outskirts you can have affordable housing. That's actually not where people are connected to that community mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and so I think, you know, the governments are very uh, active in in recycling social housing yeah. uh, in, in a way that still keeps it, um, you know, closer in, but in fact is is then recycled as suburbs are re-rated and, and indeed refurbished uh, and redeveloped. Yeah. And I guess the um, final thing on just on the research, I kind of want to, you know, when people are looking at it is... Um, the problem with, with the equity investing, I've had this problem for quite a few years where clients will come to me and I'm like, I don't think you should buy because A, you haven't got enough from a deposit point of view. You're going to buy something that you're not going to grow into. And I can kind of already foresee that in three years time, you might be single now, you're going to meet someone and then you're going to want to not live in that apartment. And so you bought an investment mm. and that investment you're going to have to sell because that's all the money you've got. Yep. Um, and so I can kind of foresee this problem that they don't foresee. They just feel like they've got to buy back to your point around parents I think the other problem is they go, well, I can't leave it in the bank. And so then they go, I have to invest the money. <laughs> and they go, well, I want to go put it into stock markets. The problem with stock markets right now is we're, we're at the end. Well, who knows when the end is, but we've had a 10-year bull, bull market. It's probably the longest run of equity prices. And it's hard to argue that stock markets are cheap. And, you know, and, you know we're at all-time highs in the US, all-time highs in the Aussie. And a lot of people, that's not a better option just to go in there with a short-term mindset to invest into the stock market. So I guess, how do you kind of deal with that challenge? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And again, just be clear, not wanting to give financial advice because everyone's circumstances are different. Mm. But, but in fact, um, there, are, there are many different in assets you can invest in, often through the stock exchange, that in fact are not just shares. Mm. Um, and so if you think about it, there's, um, you know, there, there's you know, corporate bonds, there's bank hybrids, and there's various other things that do have higher risk associated with them, mm. but in fact are not as volatile as stocks. Mm. Um, and so again, you know, investing, any financial advisor will tell you is to have a diversified portfolio. Mm. So I think that theory would also apply. So in fact, you know, perhaps the better analogy to compare is in fact, rather than saying, as we've done in our research, put it all in equities. Mm. In mm. fact, you would actually put a, put it in a balanced portfolio. So, yeah. so you and, and that includes then foreign currency investments and all the rest of it. So, and of course that becomes complex. But if people want to invest in that type of thing, there are funds that you can invest in that do bring you that diversity. So, so, uh, but your, your point is well made, mm. you know, our, the, the people we're talking about don't want to run the risk of having what happened in 2008, mm. where you yeah. lose 50%, Yeah, uh, particularly if it's leveraged, because in fact, you will lose more. Yeah. And look, it is interesting. Back in episode 69, we interviewed Scott Phillips from Motley Fool, and, and we talked all about that. So if, mm. listeners, if you, if this is mm. of interest to you, go back to that episode. I think, the thing too is around um, this belief that you can't lose in property, and there's this idea that you can still see it, even if it's lost value. You know, you can you can still see it, as opposed to you know people getting wiped out of the share market in 2008. Um, but it's a bit of a false belief as well, you know, in the sense that, and one of the other things I keep banging on about is CoreLogic's quarterly pain and gain report, which I love, one of my favourite reports. And uh, we interviewed Cameron Kusher as well, so a couple of episodes back, and. Um, and that is just a constant reminder that property doesn't always go up in value. And, um, you know, and I think bringing back to some of the research that you've, or some of the outcome of your research was showing that location is really important. Number one, we always talk about that, but timing 
um, and over what periods of time. It's very interesting, I have to say, um, because I think you have to layer into that. Obviously, as an investor, that's critical. But the problem is you don't know any of that until in the rear vision mirror, do you? So therefore, I think what isn't it's not part of this, well, it hasn't been part of this conversation too much, but I'm not sure if you looked into this in the research, but the type of asset, because there's apartments and there's apartments, you know, so I would, I would hazard that some apartments are crap. Well, I, I know a lot of apartments are crap and some are amazing investments. So, and yeah. Yeah, and clearly by using average data for local mm. government yeah. areas, we don't pick up on that. Yeah, so we're just yeah. saying on average. But yeah. your, your point your point is well made. But, you know, we are looking at the aggregate data mm. and looking at that trend over time. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's a foundation to look at those foundations and say, well, these are the general principles, overarching, you know, principles. Now really diving in and understanding better what is happening in the market at the time. Um, and Yeah, I think the first home buyers that, you know, and it's the height of the boom was, you know, really where we're starting to see all the problems now because it's three years and a lot of them went and bought off the plan apartments. Um, I mean, there's one at the moment I'm dealing with is, you know, client bought a, a you know, a unit in Marrickville, you know, at the height of the boom, it's settling right now. Um, you know, he paid 670, you know, it's probably only worth like 600 at best. Um, you know, and you've got all the, you know, if he sells that, it's going to be worth 570. So he's lost his 70 grand, you know, mm. and there's no way out of it. He can't actually really sell it. Because if you sell it, you know, you've lost all your money. So he's lost his 10% deposit. And so, you know, a lot of these people in 16, 17, just this pressure to buy pushed in mm. and it's, and we haven't really started to see all these first home buyers have been stitched up because unfortunately the state government was offering a lot of incentives for people to go and buy new property. And, um, you know, they're not really kind of, you know, taking ownership here. They've just pushed people into poor assets and now it's kind of unwinding. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Andrew, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Uh, look, I, I think the, the biggest mistake I've seen people make is is to borrow too much money. Mm. Um, mm. And, and therefore they just, they just, you know, in the ambition to have a nice place, actually you know, really ruin their lifestyle because yep. they don't have that that flexibility and they have the stress associated with it. So it's a very general one, mm. but that 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 would be the, the dumbo for me. Yeah. And they just yes, it's that drive to own and then what? <laughs> then I live with that stress. I'm trapped by my property. I think it's very it's very true. I think it says that it usually happens in their mid forties. Um, you know, it's the peak of their earning cycle sometimes and, you know, that's when they'll kind of go on they 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 can borrow the most. They've also seen that it's worked for them in the past, you know, because mm. they've, you know, the, the strategy is always borrow as much as you can when you're in your early 20s and 30s. Stretch yourself is what mm. the parents say, right? And they do that, but then they stretch at the wrong point in time. They stretch when they get to their peak of their earning cycle. And then the pay rises don't come. You know, there's maybe redundancies. Yeah. Um, so you know, <laughs> the kids, the kids, you know, schooling's costs are there, mm. you know, costs are going up. And what ends up happening, their living expenses go up, but their salaries don't go up. And, you know, that's when I see the biggest problem is people taking on a lot of debt when they're in their mid-40s. And so I guess that's just something also to, to, to throw in there. You've got to make sure you don't take on too much debt at the wrong time um, because, you know, things sometimes don't go to plan. I think that has to be the boot camp for this episode. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Andrew, that's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining oh, us. Thank you. It's been good. Thank We'd you. We'd love to get you back another time and talk about more about this accessibility of the property mm-hmm. market and mm-hmm. some of the big the big questions, the big thinking around that. So, um, you know, hopefully we can, we can get you back sometime. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Let's talk about timing. You know, a lot of people ask me about when's the best time to buy, and certainly that's a topic that we were talking about with regards to Andrew's research as well. And certainly encourage you to get into that report uh, that we'll put the link in the show notes. And there's an interactive map there, so you can pick suburbs and pick timelines and all the rest of it. So that's interesting, but it's also a little bit dangerous because the thing is, and Andrew was talking about this research had done over 10-year periods and there are times when it would be better to buy, sorry, better to rent than buy. But if you have decided that you were going to buy your own home, so the decision has been made, then you can't be focused on trying to get the timing right. It's it's a real danger, right? But, but I'll, I'll caveat that by winding back and saying, as long as you have decided that you want your own home, okay? So if you're looking at it as an investment uh, decision, i.e., oh, should I invest in property or should I invest in shares or whatever? Well, that's a different conversation to be had. You know, nobody can predict it. I mean, if you're interested in predicting things, then download our full or forecaster report, which is on the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, and you'll find out the following predicting. So you can only know in retrospect uh, whether you got the timing right or not. So that's why the asset selection is so important. But I wind it back to if you have decided to buy a home, then the, then what you need to do is work out what you want to buy, where you want to buy and all that sort of stuff. You need to start looking. And when you find the right property, you need to buy it. You need to not be focusing on timing the market because you will tie yourself up in knots and you won't get it right anyway because nobody absolutely gets it right at the outset. It's only in retrospect when they know whether they actually did or didn't. Please join us next week for an episode with a difference. We are talking to Kat Burgess. Kat's a specialist in marketing residential property developments. And you know how Chris and I, we're a little bit biased against buying brand new property. So you are going to have to tune in if you want to find out whether we get into a bit of argy-bargy on this one. Or maybe we actually learn a thing or two. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on the Elephant in the room.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.